I want to thank you so much for what you've ordained this evening. I thank you for the beauty of this evening and what it is we've had the opportunity already to do by pouring forth our praise. And Just pray tonight, God, that you would do something revolutionary in all of us. That you would speak profoundly, Lord. That you would minister in such a way that we just get it. That we'd be drawn in and we'd have so much fun. But deeper and more meaningfully than just all of that, that there would be this richness in our soul. And speak into our lives, God. You know where we're at. You know what, is, what, what we're challenged with, what we're dealing with, Lord. You know those battles we are in the heat of, and you know those other areas, Lord, where we rest in peace. And I pray tonight you would speak into each of our lives. So have your way perfectly tonight, we pray. Lord, I pray you would redeem every second and that we would be captivated tonight in you. And Lord, when it's done, that we would be like, wow, what a great God. So have your way. We commit this time to you ask for, asking, Lord, for you to just do beautiful, beautiful things. And you're the God who does those kind of things, so we trust that you will. So even tonight, Lord, have your way. And if there be any who have yet to know you, let tonight be the night of their salvation, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight, as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Not some man, whether he has a collar or a degree. Uh, it doesn't matter who he is. If the Bible's not the expert, then some man thinks he is. And I've never trusted a man that far. We start this in 1 Kings chapter 4, if you will, kind of with the, with the statement how far wisdom really gets us. We go back to chapter 3, and if you have your Bibles, you can flip back there. In chapter 3, God makes a house call with Solomon. Solomon is the son of David. David is passed off the scene. Solomon is in a situation where, for a moment, what he is doing looks really, really beautiful on the outside. The sad part is, we kind of know the end of the story. And the end of the story isn't very beautiful. The end of the story, we know that Solomon's going to turn away, and he's going to turn away... To be honest, because of love, because of a hunt for love. Somewhere in all of that, Solomon will have a thousand women that are either married to him in one manner or another. And it tells us that those women turned his heart away from the Lord. And, and, and obviously, I don't know how many people you invest in, but there's got to be a point where the guy just doesn't recognize most of the girls in his household he's married to. But prior to all of that, we, what we have then, if you really think about it, is we kind of have the anatomy of a failure. And I can watch people that I can tell you story after story. I've been around the block a few times where you've seen someone that really looked heroic in their faith. They looked amazing. And by the time that you sort of see them around that last bend, they are just nothing like that anymore. And we can't see what's going on in the inside, but we can only see the trail of the outside. And somewhere down the line, it, for some of us, we kind of look and we see somebody that looks so profoundly rich in Christ. And then we go, what in the world happened to you? We have the dubious privilege, if you will, of being able to see that with this young man, Solomon. So the Lord shows up in chapter 3. God does a house call. He'll do that at least twice, uh, two different times with that with Solomon. And he appears in verse 5 and he asks Solomon, what, what, what do you want me to give you? And imagine if God were to do that to you. Anything, no, no limit. You just tell me the one thing I would give you. What would you ask for? Now we know what his father would ask for and his father left a, a beautiful legacy in that because David wrote it in a song when he said, one thing I've desired of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. The one thing David really wanted was God. Everything else was secondary. And I kind of get the idea that it was David's statement would be the similar, if you will, to what Paul would say in Philippians when he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says to the Colossians, when Christ, who is our life, appears, will appear with him in glory. So he's my life, man. He's not just some periphery. He's not a, a moon orbiting a planet in the solar system of my existence. He is the center. And I orbit around him. Well, in Solomon's case, Solomon's a kid. He's a teenager at this point. And as he's a teenager, he's freaked out because his dad has left him the kingdom to rule. And he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by the thought 
that he has to actually make these decisions. Now understand that the king was your supreme court. He was your old bailey. So when the smaller judges, if you will, the circuit judges couldn't solve a case, the unsolvable cases wound up going to the king and whatever he said was gold. That was it. It was law. It was edict. And Solomon knows he is completely, he is just under-equipped and he's outgunned. He's overwhelmed. So he tells him, and he says this, by the way, he says, Oh, Lord, my God, you've made your servant king instead of my father, David. I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, this is what I ask. Give your servant an understanding heart. And the word understanding is the word shema. Some of you might be familiar with that word because it's one of the more common Hebrew words. It means to hear. Give me a hearing heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who was able to shafat judge a different word there this great people of yours notice what Solomon is asking is for something for the people he's got one option and in the simplest sense what he says is I am in this place where man I I, I just can't do this I am going to fail miserably unless you give me what is necessary not to fail. I just don't want to fail the people. Now, it's a good cause. It's just not the best. Solomon asks for earthly wisdom. And he needs it to handle his earthly responsibility, and he gets it in abundance. But it's important to note, even before that, when his father was about to die in 1 Kings chapter 2, I believe it's in verse 9, he speaks about a guy named Shammai who really made David's life miserable in some of the lowest points in it. And David says to his son Solomon, he says, Now listen, you are a wise son, and you know to do what you ought to do for that particular that, that man. Don't bring his gray hair down to the grave. Bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. And the idea is that David recognized, even before he died, he looked at his son and said, you're a, way, you're a wise kid, you are wise. Uh, and he calls him a man, even though he's a teen. But Solomon looks and he goes, in light of the responsibilities in front of me, I'm not that wise. Would you please give me what I need not to fail? And we can be driven by that, beloved. We can be driven by this desire that we really don't want to blow. We don't want to make it. We don't want to, we just don't want to, we don't want to fail in front of people. And we don't want to fail the people. We, we'd rather die than have somebody look at us with that look of disappointment like, I expected so much more from you. And in this culture, that is about as much of an anathema as anything is. Well, that's where Solomon is. He just doesn't want to fail the people. Now, interesting as it will, as, as it is, the next thing we get is that Solomon's first case. And his first case as a Supreme Court judge, if you will, as the old Bailey, is not military. It is not political, but it's personal. And it is the death in the home of a heart for sale. Two prostitutes, two whores arguing over two babies. One's living and one is dead. And what's interesting is, that we learn a lot from these two women. One is obviously not the mother and one obviously is. Now, removing the judges from this situation, the mother who had the child knows it's hers. The woman who did not have the child knows that the child is not hers and she is lying. But by the time it gets to Solomon, you need to recognize it's already gone through the court system. That means there's a whole lot of other people that are like, I, it's your word. I mean, it's the word of one whore against another. And I'm not trying to be rude. I'm trying to be honest. It's two prostitutes standing in a room. And basically they said, look, it, we both have babies roughly, you know, the same age. And one of us rolled over on a baby and killed it. And I say that baby's mine. She says the baby's hers. Solomon says, but he gives his first act as, as a wise man, if you will. He says, give me a sword. Let's cut that thing in half. For which then the real mother says, okay, fine, forget it. And she, having her own heart ripped out by losing her own child, would rather give her own life up, if you will, in that sense, to have this child live. She goes, well, okay, then just give the baby to the other. Now, the other woman, on the other hand, looks and goes, oh, no, no, go ahead and kill it. Who cares? Just rip that thing. Cut that thing in half. And Solomon looks and he goes, well, it's pretty obvious, don't you think, which one's the mom? 
And what I realize is there are two different people here that really become, to be honest, the center of all of what we understand as we walk with the Lord. On one side is one who actually births. Somebody who has a personal relationship with this child. And she would rather give her life and have her heart ripped out than let the baby die. And I learned from that, that real love gives life to give life. And of course, that will lead me to my Savior who gave his own life so that he could give me life. Well, interesting though, on the other side is the enemy. The enemy, on the other hand, as I look at this, I realize she has no problem dividing this thing because she didn't birth it. She has no personal relationship with this thing. And so the enemy divides gleefully. No problem ripping that thing apart and letting it die. It's not mine anyways. And that's the enemy of your soul. He has no, part div- he has no problem dividing the body of Christ. He has no part ripping this thing apart. He has no problem ripping your life apart because you're not his anyways. He has no personal attra- attention to you. The only reason you're important to him is because he knows how much God loves you and he knows how much it will hurt God if he hurts you. And he doesn't have a problem watching you destroy your life because the more you rip your life apart, the more that he's gleefully watching the one who really loves that child be broken over it. And as a result of that, the people take notice. And they're like, wow, that was brilliant. That was brill, bruv. So we start seeing a time of fantastic outward prosperity. A time, by the way, where, and I remind you, Solomon's inheriting most of this. David did all the fighting. Solomon cashes in, if you will, on the product of it. All the nations around David will pay, Solomon will pay tribute. David had counted a 1.3 million person army. Uh, Solomon's is even larger than that. There's peace everywhere. The only time in history that I can think of that everything that surrounded Israel actually was at peace with them. I mean, consider today. If we were to kind of follow, there's one place in all of the places that surround Israel that isn't a great threat to Israel. Do you know what it is? The Mediterranean. It's actually the western border. You go south from that, and what you have is Egypt. Well, they're not real hot on on Israel. And you go beyond that, that's Saudi Arabia. They don't like Israel either. You go north from there, you have Jordan. They're not hip on Israel. And then you have Iraq and Iran. They hate Israel too. Go north of there, and what do you have? You have Lebanon and Syria. Yeah, they hate Israel too. And then you go beyond that, that's Turkey. They hate Israel too. None of them like Israel. But for this brief moment in time, 40-year period, if you will, Actually, all of the borders of Israel were safe. I have a lot of friends in Israel, and they say the Western world is a place with unsafe cities, but safe borders. Israel is a place with safe cities, just unsafe borders. And at this point, they're going to have a fantastic, fantastic time of peace and prosperity. It is the largest kingdom they have ever seen and will ever see until the time of of Christ. I should say until the second coming of Christ when he's yet to come. But when that nation turns away, all of that great prosperity will come to futility. And it'll happen in your life too. God could bless you in miraculous and beautiful ways. And you turn from him and all of a sudden you have to give four times the effort and you're not getting one quarter the dividend anymore. It's amazing how that works. And where all that peace, now it'll be all conflict. Even if there isn't anybody knocking down your door, you just don't even have it inside. So what we have in our chapter here, if you've read through it, our first six verses, verses 1 to 6, are 11 leaders that he chooses, if you will, to oversee his kingdom. Of which, by the way, arguably, five of them are priests. The first, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth of them. 7 and 19, we have 12 govs, 12 governors, including two son-in-laws. And then from 20 to 34, we see that earthly wisdom does breed earthly prosperity, and it therefore will breed rejoicing. And earthly wisdom will bring about earthly good, but God's will is to impact you or use you to impact for eternity, forever. So we read in verse 1, Solomon was king over all Israel. The last time we're really going to see all of Israel mentioned in such a way with one king is this this Solomon. And these are the officials, his officials. So let's just try to say them back and forth just so you can say you said them right if you will. Chazaria, try that. 
Thank you. Now remember, there's a Hebrew. Hebrew means the Hatzaria. Thank you. Beautiful. It means God helped. He's the son of Zadok, the priest, who, by the way, happened to be David's priest. The priest, by the way, did you notice of the 11 he's mentioned first? I think that that's interesting. And I remind you, this is what real wisdom does. It chooses its friends wisely, and those that lead with him chooses wisely. If it's in the order of importance, I love the fact it goes from priest to scribe to soldier to the workforce. He's Zadok's grandson, actually, but we call him son of because that's the way it works in the Middle East to this day. First Chronicles 6, 8, and 9 make that clear. And he's a legacy. He's actually, if you will, um, he is the son of dad's priest. So he inherited that, if you will, from dad. Second guy, if you will. Alechoref. Try that. Alechoref. Alechoref means God of harvest time. And Ahia. Ahia means God's bro. The sons of Shisha the scribe. Now, if Shisha is the Shavsha that we read in Second Samuel 8, well, then he's also a legacy from daddy. He's the son. Now, David had a scribe. Now, the scribe's sons are actually taken over for Solomon. Now, what is a scribe? Well, we know a scribe, like the word scribble, means he writes things down. But he's the one who prepared royal declarations of military and political alliances. He's the one who did trade edicts. In other words, he was the political guy that wrote the king's speeches, but also wrote the contracts. He's the contract writer. Today, we have lawyers do those kind of things. Back then, you had a scribe. In his case, he has two of them, for what it's worth. And again, they're legacies from dad. Then we have the guy, Yehoshaphat. Try that, Yehoshaphat. Yehoshaphat means God judged. He's the son of Ahilud, the recorder, and he also, by the way, worked for dad. I see that as far as 2 Samuel. He's the official records keeper. The recorder isn't the guy who plays this little thing that's like this. A recorder is actually a guy who is the records keeper. And in 2 Samuel 8 and in 2 Samuel 20, what we realize is that he was actually, he worked for his dad as well. Next guy, Benaiah. That should be easy. Benaiah. Benaiah means God built. The son of Yehoiada, that's how you say that, by the way. Yehoiada, over the army. He worked for dad, is David as well. And we have Zadok, which means righteous. And Abiathar, which means great father. The priests, who also worked for his dad in 2 Samuel 15.35. Now, if this is the same Abiathar, this was the guy who defected when Solomon's brother tried to take over the throne, if you remember that back in 1 Kings 1. And therefore, it was deposed. But here we see Solomon somehow is still using him. And then we have Hatzaria. Try that. Hatzaria. It means God has helped. The son of Nathan over the officers. In other words, those guys that we'll see listed in 7 and 19. And then we have Zabud, like Airbud. Zabud. Try that. Zabud. It means given. The son of Nathan. Notice these two guys are sons of Nathan. Is it the same Nathan? Is it Nathan the prophet? Is it Nathan David's son? We really don't know. We just know it's Nathan. But if it's the case, notice what it says about Zavud. It says he is the son of Nathan, a priest and a king's friend. Now David had a Hithophel and then later would have a Shai. Solomon chooses a priest. Now, can I say this? This is a talk I had with both of my daughters. And it's a short one, so this is one of those grandpa moments, if I could, with you. When you meet someone there, an acquaintance, you're acquainted with them, at least to some degree. And if we're polite, we say things like, pleased to make your acquaintance. I'm acquainted with you now. And if I tried hard enough, I just might remember your name. But that doesn't make them a friend. Somewhere down the line, there's a smaller batch of people than the people you know. And they are your friends. What's the difference? A friend has the privilege of influence. And if you consider that, you may not be able to choose all of your acquaintances. You may not be able to choose everyone you work with unless you're the boss. And even then, it's debatable whether you could still choose the people that work for you sometimes. But you can choose your friends. And a lot of time, the trouble we get in is because we are careless with who we choose as our friends. If you really think about it, a friend is going to have influence over your life and you'll find that your friends, you hang out with them long enough, you'll find that there's some mannerisms or something they're going to start rubbing off and you'll start behaving like. And the question is, who do you want to behave more like? Who do you want to influence you and who do you not want to influence you? Because if you choose people that you know are bad influences, you're going to spend your whole life trying to filter everything they think and say and do. You'll be exhausted. 
And if you really think about it, the person that you are romantic with is only, and in essence, a friend on steroids. I mean, they just have a fantastic amount of influence on your life. Now, the reason I say that is, we don't necessarily read all of these people were Solomon's friend, but we do read that he has one. And the one that he has is a priest. And might I suggest this? A priest in the simplest sense represents man to God and God to man. He takes the concerns of man to God and he takes the love of God to men. Have a friend like that. Because when you need genuine, healthy advice and support, such a person is better than gold. Well, and that's the case here with Solomon as well. He's the king's friend. Then we have this guy. As we Now we're almost done with these guys. Ahishar, try that, Ahishar. Ahishar means my brother sang. Who names your kid that? Now you give now a boy, traditionally, you give him eight days. You circumcise him on the eighth day, and on that eighth day they ask then, what are you going to call him? And there are guys like Nachash, which means snorter. I get that name. It's like give it eight days, and you're like, wow, that kid, when he sleeps, nobody else does. We're going to call him snorter. A little rough when you get to school, but at least you get to understand why his name is that. But who names him? His brother sang. Now, maybe when mom was given birth, brother was singing. I don't know. But that's his name, just the same. And he was over the household. In other words, he was the guy that made sure that Solomon's house ran smooth. That will be important when the Queen of Sheba shows up, by the way. And then we have this guy. Adon- see, I want to make sure that I'm saying them all right. Adoniram. Try Adoniram. Which means, my Lord is exalted. What a fantastic name. Now, look at the people that... Solomon is actually choosing as the leaders. Their names are God helped, the God of harvest, God's brother, God judged, God built, righteous, great father, God is helped, given, the Lord is, my Lord is exalted. Oh yeah, and then my brother sang. Now, you know, and the only reason I say that is, is that, you know, understand when they're naming names like this, these aren't, these are Hebrew names in a Hebrew language. Now, today we kind of do that. Matter of fact, this generation, more than any recently, have like their names are like Hunter or like Starshine. Have you noticed that? It's like, matter of fact, I know a friend who wants to name their child, his first child Cheeseburger. You know, what's your name? Lemonade. Now, the only reason I say that is somewhere down the line, there's a difference between just naming them something you like think is cool or naming them something you think kind of hints at their character. But definitely one thing's for sure, it will hint at your parents. If you like, hi, what's your name? Moonbeam. I'm like, hippies, right? Your parents were hippies, right? Right? You know, yeah, yeah, they were hippies. Yeah, I kind of figured that. What's your sister's name? You know, and it's like, you, you kind of get that bell bottoms. That's her name. You know, okay, all right, I get it. And the reason, I mean, you kind of know when you meet certain people, you know, I mean, have you ever met someone and you hear their name and you think, wow, man, dad must have hated you, you know? And I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be mean, but the reason I say that is, is that these guys, I mean, parents could have named them anything. They could have named them Ginger. They could have named them Skinny or Scrawny or Chubby or Flabby or Barfsalot. I mean, there's a lot of things they could have called it, but they're naming it things like, my Lord is exalted. And I kind of get the idea they're coming from pretty good stock to do that. Could you imagine? Now, you know that because we could almost make fun of it. Like, What's your friend's name? Ezekiel. <laughs> Where did they come that name? You know, it's like you realize sometimes all oh, Christians they always seem to be naming them things biblical. Oh, wouldn't that be great if they were so influenced by someone that they would go strong, faithful. Let's name him Daniel. You know, that would be great. You know, a little creepy, hangs out in a church, but he rings a bell. Let's name him Hugo. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, Hugo. Uh, you know, and, and the whole point of it is, is that there are certain names where you just kind of know, I, I kind of get the idea the parents were pulling that out of Scripture. That's a good thing. Now, one of those guys was over the workforce. And by the way, that's going to be really important by the time he starts building the temple in 1 Kings 5. And we're going to see that all through that. But another guy, as we saw here, was over, uh, as we saw it, was over the officers. That was the guy, Hatsari, in verse 5. Well, now we get to meet those. Now, for what it's worth, in 2 Timothy 2, 2, to bring it into the New Testament, it says, and the things Paul is speaking to Timothy as he's about to die, the things which you've heard from me from many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who are able to teach others also. And he's like, I want to make sure that these are men that could really don't, not just maintain, but will seek the Lord with me on them. Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel, verse 7, who provided food for the king and all of his household. Each one made provision for a month of the year. 
12, now this is simple math. If 12 guys each provide for one month at a time, how much of the year is taken up? This isn't a difficult question. All of it. Thank you, Adam. Exactly. Adam, nice name, by the way. You know, and now you're the oldest, right? And that would be weird if you weren't. You know, Adam, he's the fifth. Okay. Uh, now, yeah, so now here's the point of it, is that there are 12 guys, Solomon in wisdom. What wisdom has done is not just picked friends, but wisdom has organized things so that there's not a shortfall in any particular month. 12 months, each guy gets a month. If it were me, I'd go for February, but what do I know? So, because uh, it's shorter. Now, the, here are their names, and this just gets even more fun. You ready? First one, Ben-Hur. Try that, Ben-Hur. His name means pure son. Second one, Bendeker. Bendeka means, by the way, the sun is pierced. It actually literally means stabbed son, for what it's worth. Who names their son that? Third name, Ben Chesed. Obviously, I get the idea Ben means son. Ben Chesed means the son gives mercy. Ben Abinadab, try that. Ben Abinadab. It means the son of the gracious or willing father. And it tells us, by the way, so Ben-Hur in the mounds of Ephraim, Ben-Hur in Machaz, Sha'alvim, Beshemesh, and Ilon Ben-Bet-Hadan. You can look, by the way, on your map to see these. Uh, I gave it to you so at least you had you didn't just have to go, what are these places? Ben-Hur in Arabot. Uh, to him belongs Sochol and to the land of Hifr. Uh, in Ben-Avinadav, uh, in the regions of Dor. He had, by the way, Tafat, the daughter of Solomon, his wife. Now, there's going to be two daughters. Two of these guys are sons-in-law. And what that tells me is that I had the first two kids' names that Solomon names his kids. And I wonder what Solomon going to name his kids. Was he going to name them things like, wow, God is awesome. God, you sure provide. There's so many things. He names the first one here, Tafat. And for it's worth, Tafat means a drop of ointment. It's kind of romantic, but it's certainly not religious. No, verse 12. We have the name Ba'ana. Try that, Ba'ana. I think I heard the minions still thinking like Ba'ana. Uh, the son of Hilud in Ta'anach, Megiddo and Bet-Shan, which is beside Zeratan, below Jezreel, from Bet-Shan to Eber Mahalach, uh, as far as the other side of Yachneam. Ba'ana, by the way, means afflicted or in affliction. Ben-Giver. Try that, Ben-Giver. Son of man is what his name means. And Rot Gilead. To him belong the towns of Yer and the son of Manasha in Gilead. To him also belong the regions of Argab. Uh, well, that's a rough name. Uh, in Bashan, 60 large cities with walls and bronze gates and bars. And then we have this name, Ahinadav. Try that. Ahinadav means the willing brother, the son of Ido in Mahanaim. Then we have Ahima'az. Try that. Ahima'az. Literally means, and takes his brother's wrath. Now, who names their kid that? In Naphtali, he also took Basmat, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Now we have Solomon's second daughter. And her name, in essence, means perfume. So you have perfume and a drop of ointment. That's what he names his kid. Um, this, by the way, this guy may be the son of Zadok, the priest. We see that in 2 Samuel 5, 1527. Ba'ana. We've had that before. Ba'ana, I remind you, means in affliction. The son of Hushai and Asher and Adot. Yehoshaphat, we know that name from before. It means God is judged. The son of Paruach in Issachar. Then we have Shemai, which means famous or the renowned or quite familiar. The son of Ilah in Benjamin. And then we have Giver. Try Giver. It means strong man or enemy or warrior. The son of Uri in the land of Gilead, in the country of Sihon, king of Amorites, and of Og, king of Bashan. He was the only governor who was in the land. Now you're going, I can't believe I went to a study so a guy could speak a bunch of Hebrew names at me. Now, it was different in the first part because it was a list of people in regards to their responsibilities. And we saw the list of those responsibilities being from priests down to just basically handling the workforce. Not that any are unimportant, but it started with the priesthood and it worked its way down to the common people, if you will. Now, and the reason I say that is, is that this order is really important and we can miss that. Now, you kind of get the idea here. There's something suspicious, isn't it, that all these guys start with the name Ben or started that way. Did you notice that? 
Verse 8, there was Ben Hur, and then Ben Decher, and then Ben Hased, then Avinadab. Now, one in the world. So, so, okay, so if I were to read these names to you, big deal, right? Because now they're, they're, it isn't like we're kind of following some really specific order on a map, which would make the most sense to me. Okay, we're going to look at that region, and now there's that region. We have a bunch of names, and we're kind of doing this. So God, somewhere in his brilliance, puts these names together in some order, as if somehow the issue was not, they're, they're not in alphabetical order, it's not in geographical order, so why in the world does he do that? Now, I'm the kind of person that's constantly looking at those things and going, what do I get out of this? So if I were to say to you, Ben Chur, Ben Decher, Ben Chesed, Ben Advinadab, Ba'ana, Ben Yever, Achinadab, Achimaaz, Ba'ana, Yehoshaphat, Shemai, Yever, that probably means nothing to you. Unless you were speaking to someone who understood Hebrew. Because what you have is this. The pure son, that son is pierced for that son to give mercy as the son of the willing father. In affliction, the son of man as a willing brother takes his brother's wrath. In affliction, God has judged the renowned enemy or strong man. Now that means a lot more to me. And I realize in this message of these people, God is telling me that there's a, there's a Messiah coming. And that Messiah is listed by the one word we get more than any other in all of these, and that is son. I am looking for a son who is a pure son, who is a pierced son, who is a son who gives mercy, who is a son of a father who is full of grace and willingness, who is afflicted. I'm looking for an afflicted son who would be called the son of man who would call to those whose wrath he would take their brother. And he would take their wrath in his affliction. And in taking that wrath, God judges the enemy. That is how God listed it. That's up to you to deal with. But I look at that and I say, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And all that was was a bunch of guys that watched over a bunch of areas. I remind you, who provided what Solomon needed to keep his household running. Now, interesting though, I remind you, the first case he, he handled was a divided house because love was for sale. And as a result of that, a baby died. I find that interesting because that'll be in essence the story of Solomon if you think about it. So even with the names himself, wisdom is allocated in the leaders in order to provide provision and support on a daily basis for the course of a month. And I ask, what about you? Who in your life is actually support to you. Now, I don't mean who is actually paying your check because most of the time we tend not to pick that person and if we could, we might want to pick again. But who in your life helps provide those things that allow your household to thrive? And think about what your household really needs to thrive. Who's praying for you? Who's in the word with you? Who's challenging you to grow? Who's seeking to example those things and seeking for you to follow in that as well? Because you pick those people. And when you don't pick those people, the house runs dry. And when the house runs dry, things look really rough for the kingdom. Well, when I say that our son, I say not our son, the son of God, the son of man, was afflicted to defeat the enemy so that I could have mercy. And I'm so thankful. Now we see the reference of what takes place as a result of that. In verse 20 it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea and the multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now don't miss this. Judah and Israel, aren't they all Israel? At this particular moment in time, this they are. But after Solomon Israel will divide. It'll be a civil war worse than the whole Captain America thing. Because in this particular one, it is brothers killing brothers or cousins killing cousins because in the end of it all, Solomon's son is going to be a punk to some degree and he leaves no legacy like his father did. But here there's a hint of it that there is a Judah and an Israel. I remind you, he was the king, the last king of the United Empire. Now, the people, now on the outside, there's eating and drinking and rejoicing. On the outside, things look great. I mean, we're looking at this and going, wow, look at how great this kingdom is. They are celebrating prosperity. 
their financial ways are strong. In other words, their currency is strong on the market. They seem to be relatively safe from attack as far as there's no major, there's no country going after them. They seem to have a relatively stable government at this moment. People come to this country and they find prosperity financially. Does that not sound like here? Yeah, we could say there are some unsafe moments, but there's no country going to war against us. Could we say the same thing of America? We could say the same thing. Now, one of the reasons we don't get attacked in America is we're just so darn far from everyone else, and Canada has no interest in fighting because Mexico has their own issues. So we're pretty safe as far as that is because by the time they get there, for the most part, we've already, 15 other people have blogged about it, and we're already ready for them, usually. Now, the only reason I say that is, is that this is, I remind you, Uh, From the outside, this is to be envied from a worldly perspective, but without a heart for the living God, it's going to be temporary. And let me warn you, whatever the world gives you can be good, but it only is good for a moment. It does not last. But when God does something, it is permanent and it is lasting and it is eternal. And the question is exactly which one of the fountains do you want to go to? Do you want to go to the limited tap, the cistern that's broken anyways, and go, well, you know, for the moment, I'm, you know, and if you, you know, and I can tell you, you watch people and they're good looking and they're talented and they're charming and they're socially gifted. And I look at, I came from, you know, I was just four hours from Hollywood and I spent enough time there to recognize when you talk to people there and they've got it all, they're on TV all the time or they're in the, the film all the time and people adore them for the moment. And you ask them, what's the one advice everyone gives here? They'll tell you, don't get old. But exactly how do you not get old? No matter how much you nip and tuck and flip and suck or whatever, you're going to get old. Gravity is going to win. I'm not here to bum your groovy, but I'm here to let you know the truth. It's going to win. And no matter how nice your skin is, it's going to wrinkle sooner or later. And no matter how beautiful and rich that hair is, I mean, this is sad. I modeled for, for well, it's not... Anyways, all I have to say, there was a time when there was a whole lot more going on upstairs than there is now. No, you know, and at that moment, you're like, I'm going to live forever. I'm the king of the world. And then you roll down that hill. And I just remember back when I was a kid, people, you know, these, these beautiful old chocolate skin gals that would say, I'm going down the hill. You walking up. In other words, I have advice for you because I've already been there. And sooner or later, you're going to get to that top of the hill. And you're not going to live there for the rest of your life. The only reason I say that is not, again, to bum your groovy. is to let you know, if you're trying to suck from the world, that straw runs out pretty darn quick. But man, when you fall into the arms of the Lord and you say, I want you be my satisfaction, it just never runs out. Well, here, things look really good, but they aren't going to last forever. So it tells us, In verse 21, Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, by the way, it's the river Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines, that's to the Mediterranean Sea, as far as the border of Egypt to the south. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life from the river of Euphrates, that's through Iran, the border of Iran, through Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, and to the Mediterranean. And by the way, that's still not all the land God promised in Genesis 15, 18 through 20. But to give you an idea how much property we're looking at, we're looking at 60,000 square miles. That's an awful lot of property. And that is only the beginning of it. Now let's talk about what he was getting. Remember those guys that were providing Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. Core, by the way, basically 30 cores equals roughly 185 bushels. 60 cores of meal, 375 bushels. 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, which I assume means they're free range then. 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl chunky chickens. Now, what do we got here? Let me kind of, let me put this into perspective. First of all, look at verse 22 and you tell me all of this was going how many times a month? Excellent. It was every day. So however, however many days are in that month. So every day this was showing up. So let's put things into perspective. Do you know how many people live in Holborn? I'm sorry. Let's start with this. Do you know how many people live in Covent Garden? Ooh, you know, you're twice as much. That was a great guess, though, by the way. It's four and a half. Less than four and a half. Four, two, five, or something like that. 
Do you know how many people live in Holborn? 14,000. So let's just put things into perspective. Let's say that all of the food that shows up here was for all of the people in Holborn, 14,000 plus. Which, by the way, where I came from, that was basically the town I lived in and the next town over. If you took that, by the way, just that much, those many people, and you were going to feed them at David's table because of what he's getting per day. Give you an idea. That's the 185 bushels of fine flour, 375 bushels of meal, 10 fetid oxen, which, by the way, roughly is about 12,000 kilos or 25,000 pounds per day. 20 oxen from the pastures are free-range mowers, 22,000 kilograms or 48,000 pounds. 100 sheep, roughly 10,000 kilos, 22,000 pounds. Besides the deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fetid fowl, which, by the way, we don't even have a record of. What that does is this. Everyone in Holborn, every day, every day, would get at least three to five kilos of bread and at least two to three kilos of meat a day. That's for all of Holborn. Or, if you will, triple that, if you will, and say that's all the people of Covent Garden or all the people in the town I came from and the town next door. That was what he got daily. Now, when I think about my God having cattle on a thousand hills, I start doing the math on this stuff and I start going, well, wait a minute here. So I have 30 oxen, 30 oxen a day. So 10 days, that's 300. So that is with 10 days. And we multiply that by three. That's 900 oxen, if you will, a month. 900 oxen a month. No wonder why then the guy gets another 11 months. He doesn't get him off. He's got another 11 months to go scrounge up another 900 oxen is what he has to do. And then I start looking and going, 100 sheep? 100 times 30? That's 3,000. You figured that out probably. 3,000 sheep a month. And I wonder how many people sat at his table. He was at a time of ridiculous prosperity. And yet he did dominion all the way through to Iran, around Saudi Arabia, down into the north of Egypt, and all the way up around into the, into the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And yet for all of that, please hear me, Solomon is not going to be destroyed by an external conflict. Just like those two prostitutes, it will be because his love is for sale. And because of that, there will be a death in the home. And you watch some of the greatest men, and it isn't that they're destroyed by their trials as much as we think that could be the case. It isn't the conflicts. It isn't the setbacks and the disappointments they can contribute. But in the end of it all, it's the internal issue. And can I say, the issue, the, the, the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. That's the problem here. And Solomon's heart is going to be for sale. Is yours. Is mine. Because that's our problem here. Well, Judah and Israel dwelt safely at this moment. Each man under his vine and fig tree, from Dan all the way over there where he's sitting, to Beersheba. By the way, Dan's the farthest north point. Beersheba's the southern tip. All the days of Solomon. By the way, vine and fig tree are an idiom for prosperity. Micah 4.4, Zechariah 3.10. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses. Now, as our, we get to our last verses, I want to warn you, here's the problem. The prosperity gets to this place where either you start using it to bless other people or you just get chunky and slow. You got to know that. Jesus told us a parable about a man who had way too much. And here he was going, you know, I've got way too much and my barns aren't big enough. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and start renting out a bunch of self-storage units. Well, no, that's not what he says, but that's kind of the idea. He's like, I'm just going to rip down my barns and build bigger ones because the issue isn't that I have too much. The issue is I just don't have enough space to store it all, so I just need more space. <laughs> and in the end of it all, let me just warn you, God will give you everything in abundance, not so you can hoard it, but rather so you can share it. That's the beauty of it. God will give you more love and joy and peace than you can hold because you got somebody. He's going to force you to spill it on others because he really wants to use you to be a blessing to the world around you. There's the beauty of it. 
For that guy that's like, I'll just tear it down and build bigger barns, it's the one person in Scripture in a parable where God says, you fool. You've made these plans, but tonight you're going to die. What good is it then? Most of you here aren't old enough to remember a guy named Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was an extremely wealthy man in America. And because he became extremely wealthy and he had a little extra time on his hands and because he was so brilliant, he became what most people are in those positions, paranoid. He became an extreme germaphobe and he lived in kind of almost like a cryogenic chamber. Only It was, it was like, you know, it, was just, it was just weird. Anyways, in all of that, the man had an unbelievable amount of money. And when he passed away, because it was never really revealed how much he actually did possess with all of his assets and holdings. One of the newspaper reporters had asked in the area, because he actually lived not that far from us, and they asked, how much did he really leave behind after all? And this brilliant Jewish accountant said, how much? What's wrong with you? He left it all. How much did he leave behind? All of it. That's the point. And you've probably heard it said, nobody drags, you know, sort of the trailer behind your hearse. In the end of it all, it's foolish because you can't take it with you. But you can bless other people with it. And when you do, the one thing you can invite with you is other people. Well, in all of that, he has 40,000 stalls for horses and for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. What we're going to find is he has a whole lot more stalls than he does horses. Uh, we'd see that in First Chronicles, by the way. The problem is in Deuteronomy 17, it says, don't multiply horses for yourself if you're a king. It says, nor, return, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, because the Lord says you shall not return that way again. There's three things God warned a king. Well, there's more than three, but the three specific things that God highlights often are the issue of don't go chasing after love in foreign places because they'll, they'll get you to serve their gods. That's that whole idea, again, of picking your friends wisely. If, they're gonna, if they serve other gods and you're going to give them the privilege of influence, what do you think is going to happen to you? And he goes, and don't amass gold and silver for yourself because if you do that, you're going to stop trusting God anyways. And stop building up, in other words, don't get this superfluous, abundant army to where you, you and that's the idea of amassing horses, especially from Egypt, because then you won't trust me to protect you. And in the end of it all, you'll get all of these things and the world will applaud you as successful, but you are no longer trusting me for protection, nor for provision, nor for purpose anymore. And you won't trust me for anything that looks like pleasure. Well, it's a hint of what's to come. Verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the shore. Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east. Interesting, Job speaks of that in one three, And the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men, Ethan the Ezraite and He-Man, which, by the way, we read of in Psalms. I always think there's not, I always kind of, you know, read a Psalm and it's like, bless the Lord. You know, anyways, yeah, no, He-Man. Chalcol and Darda, the sons of Machol, and his fame was in the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs, which we, by the way, 10 through 29 of Proverbs, we have a whole bunch of those. And his Psalms were 1,005. Talk about being a guy that has to record all those. And he spoke of trees. From the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. In other words, gigantic and immovable to that little thing that kind of we see crawling out of a wall here, for instance. He spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish of men of all nations and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now please, please hear me in this. This is how we end this. When you are walking, and for this moment, Solomon's actually walking right with the Lord. He's making choices that are in essence going to predict his downfall. But for the moment, he's walking right with the Lord. And as he's walking right with the Lord, please hear me in this. Everything has purpose. Everything has some kind of meaning to it. Now he's asked for wisdom and he's looking and he sees wisdom in a frog, it would be the idea. He sees wisdom in traffic. He sees wisdom in crowds. He sees wisdom of a snake somewhere going on or a spider. I mean, do you ever have those days when you watch when you're just loving God and all of a sudden that same spider that would freak you out, you just look and you're like, that is the most amazing web. 
I mean, I'm still going to have to kill the thing, but it's still an amazing web. And, and I understand the reason I say that is so many of the circumstances of life that seem so pointless later on are not indication by the way that the world's getting worse, but that I'm getting worse. My world's getting worse because there was a time where I could miss a train and I would go, well, clearly God, then you have an appointment on the next one with me. Or, you know, something's going to happen to that one and you don't want me in it or something's going to happen to the next one and you want me in it. And I, I mean, all of a sudden I deal with it in a different perspective and it didn't change. Same situation, I changed in it. And then I can look and I can realize not passing this or passing that or getting this or not getting that. Something flipping around and you go, wow, that just seems so weird. You get excited about the same thing that becomes a groaning setback bag of complaints when you're not in the right place. And all of a sudden you start to recognize this same guy who found meaning in an ant would say it's all meaningless later on. And don't tell me for a second that that's exactly the same guy, because it is not. Man, you, you see somebody, and it's like, you know, and let's face it, we live in the best place to be joyful, because nobody is. It is not cultural here. And it's like, if, it's like well, it's like, you're, you know, it's, it's, some people aren't happy until they're not happy. It's like, because it's cloudy so often, they always have something to complain about. Weather's a topic for, because it's an easy one. And if that doesn't work, there'll always be something in the politics to complain about. And yet we're told to not ever complain about a political official, especially one in power, but to pray for them. Because when I pray, I start to realize, well, that, that poor fool, look at all the, man, who wants to be that guy or that gal? They need all the help they can get. Do you realize what it would be like when Paul tells us to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or complaining? All things? Can you imagine what that would be like if we took one day and did that? Pardon me for saying this if I could just bluntly as we kind of close this up, but complaining is kind of like farting. You may think you feel better, but you make everybody else miserable around you. And even when you leave the arena, if you will, the room you're in, it still lingers. And they're all there. They're like, they were happy. Then you walked in. You're like, complain, complain, complain. And then it's like they're all, you know. I mean, I don't mean to be crude, but it's, it's, I think it's a fair illustration, you know. And then you're like, oh, I'm so glad I got that out of me. And everyone else is like, I'm not. Solomon's in this place right now where he's really setting himself up because he's cushed on every way. It's like he's, he's, he's like he doesn't have to worry about running out of money. He doesn't have to worry at the moment about anybody on any side of the borders. He is safe farther than he can extend. He's got more. I mean, I can't even imagine how much food he is to throw away from this. Or I mean, how big a table is that seats fourteen thousand people? You know, and imagine how you have to imagine the guy who has to organize feeding that many people. How much can you cook at a time? You know, do you do this in shifts? I mean, it's like if that's fourteen thousand people. If you think about it, that means like it's like every you never that table never stops working. It's like twenty four hours. And he's in this amazing place where all of this is happening. And yet, hear me in this. God wants to show you purpose and meaning in things. But for that to happen, it's going to take faith. It's going to take putting him in the center. Please, please hear me in this. If you are the one trying to control your universe, if you are the center of your universe, anything that is bigger than you is scary and in essence an enemy. Because you can't control it, you can't stop it. And that's a threat. But if God is the center of the universe, anything bigger than you is still no threat as long as you know he loves you. Because he's the one responsible, not me. And there will always be things out of your control and they'll be bigger and worse and scarier and nasty and even malicious and vindictive. But even in all of those things, there's a, you can sleep at night going, you know what, God, I just know that there's a purpose behind all of this. And I know that verse that tells me that you will work all things to my good because I love you when I'm called according to your purpose and I trust you in this. And I realize on earth, since earth is only temporary, that means as bad as it gets here is still all temporary. And for those who only have this world, this is as good as it gets. But for me, this is as bad as it gets. And it's not bad. And I realize, man, this is, this is it. 
every trial, every challenge, every sin and temptation and every, you know, every battle to be fought, I leave them here. And when I stand before the Lord, there's none of that anymore. And I know that because the Son of God chose to become the Son of Man to take His brother's affliction, my affliction, because of my guilt, because God had to judge my guilt and He judged even the strong man himself by allowing Jesus to pay my price. And I, he's not asked me to earn it. He's not asked me to win it. He's not asked me to strive for it. He's just asked me to accept it. God is dropping the knee and saying, will you have me? And the only thing left is for me to give him a yes. But in doing that, I give him permission then to give my life purpose. Have you done that? I'm not asked if you joined the club. I'm not asked are you part of a group. I'm asking you first and foremost, have you accepted the gift of the Son of God? Because if you have, you are giving him permission to give your life purpose and to put purpose in everything you see around you. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for what you've shown us in it. We recognize tonight, Lord, I mean, we can look at things and from an external perspective, things look really good. They seem solid and safe. There's prosperity and peace. There is safety and sanction in a moment like this sanctuary. People can feel like they, they have their fig trees and they have their vines and everyone just goes, you know, we are invincible. Nothing bad could come from us. And somewhere in all of this, our attention diverts from the one who made us safe, from the one who blesses us and gives us all of this abundance to this place where we think somehow in this craziness, we were the ones who actually made this happen. And at which point we, we, we move away from the well to go and dig broken cisterns, to scrounge for drops of water where we once where we once bathed in the constant living torrent. And I just pray for anyone in this room who's living a life right now that's more Ecclesiastes and less Proverbs. More, it's all meaningless. It's worthless. What in the world? It's all vain and empty. Remind us what it means to live in that place of purpose with you. But at the sound of this voice, if there's anyone who has not accepted that gift, and tonight they know they need to, well then, Lord, let tonight be that night. That's the choice we make. The choice of saying yes to God. Confessing Jesus as our sacrifice, our Savior, but also as our Lord, giving him our life and letting him put purpose to it. And if that's you tonight, your heart's racing not because of what I'm saying, but because God's own spirit is convincing you that this is true. If that's the case, pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I need you. In my own abilities, I'm guilty. But you want me and you love me and you sent your only begotten son to pay my price on that cross. And when he died on that cross, you punished all my guilt. Just like scripture promised, even here, buried and on the third day just as your scripture promised he rose again and offers me a brand new life with all that filth washed away where my life has purpose and you assume the role of providing and protecting and I can rest in that and if all you really have given me as responsibility is the choice to say yes to that, I say yes. Declaring Jesus is my ransom, as my payment, as my savior, and as I hand you my life, I declare him as my Lord. Have me now, I pray. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, give a confident Amen. Lord, you hear our amens. You hear our yeses. 
So Lord, do that now I pray. Make us, Lord, all the victory that Solomon lost. Let ours be the success story that reflects and bounces away from the warning we see in Solomon's future part of his life. And beginning even now, we pray. We rely on you. Jesus, in your name. Amen.